Okay, welcome to my business contact by my grandpa. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in the time of social distancing. This is deja vu all over again because we are on our third amended version of our best practice with respect to handling evictions uh, during the COVID pandemic. And this is Charles Adernetto. I'm joined once again with the Honorable Judge Anna Huberman, who is uh, JP of the Year. And uh, since there's no JP conference this year, who may be JP of the Year for two years running. And the Honorable Gerald Williams, who is the Justice, uh, who will be the Justice Ryan uh, Judicial Officer of the Year for at least another month. Uh, And um, they are welcome once again to join us as we go through the changes for our best practice. Before we start with that, I do want to remind everyone uh, that the Administrative Office of the Courts has put out two uh, webinars on evictions. Those are both mandatory, and you are not supposed to be doing evictions unless you have completed both of those webinars, Uh, so please keep that in mind. And uh, Judges Williams or Huberman, do you have anything to say before we dive right into the best practice? Nothing for me. No, nothing else. All right, so the first thing we did was we changed the title. Uh, The previous title was pretty unwieldy. Uh, We tightened up the rationale to uh, refer more to the CARES Act and this uh, Arizona Supreme Court administrative orders, so we rewrote the rationale. Uh, Same thing with paragraph number four, the legal authority. We also added that there had been a special action uh, that did determine that the governor's first executive order was in fact constitutional. And moving on to page three, under the general guidance, uh, we do uh, did add a add a sentence in the first complete paragraph that does say that for a motion to compel the Supreme Court Administrative Order 2021-19 does require the court to attempt to contact the party in possession by telephone to provide notice of the hearing and the landlord shall cause a notice of the date, time, place, and purpose of the hearing to be delivered to the party in possession either personally or by posting the notice on the main entrance to the premises. And this does uh, settle the question of we're concerned that because of the mail service that people are not going to be getting uh, the notice. Well, we're supposed to be trying to call them uh, in addition to mailing that. Uh, We also did uh, add the paragraph on uh, just above the legal status of the parties that does recognize that the CARES Act did in fact expire on July 25. And I will turn it over to Judge Williams. Thank you. Um, A a lot of the the legal status of the parties issue, which is the first topic I'm going to discuss today, a lot of it is is, is sort of review or, or, or things that um, some of some of us that have worked these issues had hoped that were resolved, or at least that there was some kind of consensus on them. But they they keep keep coming up again, and you 
the end of the case, you, you can't even start the analysis until you first determine the legal status of the parties. The legal status of a tenant who remains in possession of the residence while the execution of the writ has been postponed initially was unclear. Um, there's no recognized uh, term or category to describe such a situation because it hadn't really existed before. The recognized options such as holdover tenant, tenant at sufferance, trespasser, squatter, just, just don't apply to this situation. Um, and then you, if, the, if you decide that the tenant's not a tenant, then it causes collateral problems for, for the people that are, are still living in the residence under the protection of the governor's order. Uh, if the tenant's no longer a tenant, could the landlord turn off the utilities? Um, would the landlord still have to make repairs? And then if the landlord accepts rent, which the executive order encourages uh, payment of rent, then would that trigger a new tenancy? So these are a lot of the issues that we had to resolve, and, and we're not the only state that's struggling with them, but everyone has pretty much come down on the same side. Uh, I noticed when eviction moratoriums were being litigated last week before the Virginia Supreme Court, a dissenting justice may have ca captured the frustration of the landlords around the country when he wrote, it does not matter whether the landlord will eventually get paid everything that he's owed, a highly optimistic supposition at best, or whether he can collect future rents if the tenant becomes employed or starts receiving government subsidies. But the tenant wants his possession of his property. It is not um, what the landlord wants is possession of his property. He does, want, he does not want to continue in a breached lease against his will. As we've discussed before, in Arizona, traditionally and unquestionably, an eviction judgment terminates the lease. However, our best practices committee determined that the only way to make this work, the only way to merge the executive order with Arizona law was to interpret the order as creating a temporary exception and hold that a residential lease during the time of the executive order was not terminated until either the writ was actually executed or until the tenant returned the keys to the landlord. This interpretation is consistent with the intent of the governor's order to protect people during a pandemic. It also avoids the absurd result of a former tenant remaining in possession of the residence without the protection of either the Landlord uh, Tenant Act or the lease itself. Um, we were very pleased to see that the Supreme Court, our, our Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, adopted this position in the administrative order. That, that were issued and, and it was continued in the next administrative order that was issued as well. So even though under normal conditions the lease would have expired, if the tenant is still in possession of the property, they're still a tenant and the landlord is still a landlord and those rules um, and those roles have not changed. So again, that, a lot of that is just review but it, it matters because you can't, in, unless you determine that the tenant's a tenant, then all the other landlord-tenant relationship uh, issues become very, very convoluted. The next issue that we had to resolve was whether or not um, 
the governor's executive order after it was extended through uh, Halloween, basically, whether that applied to leases that had expired. So the, the next issue I want to talk to you about is, is leases that were, were scheduled to not be renewed. The, the governor's order extended the, his, his, second, his second executive order uh, created a lot of additional issues, but given the length of time since the eviction and the enforcement um, had, had been postponed, I mean, these have been going on since March. So now we actually have leases that were set to expire. And as such were evictions based on the lease not being renewed, also covered by the executive order. And the consensus opinion of our best practices committee was yes, they are. Now an argument can certainly be made that the governor's order only applies to parties that are still in a landlord-tenant relationship. If the lease is expired, then that relationship arguably has as well. In addition, landlords could justify, justifiably complain perhaps if their leases were being involuntarily extended with tenants who are not paying the amount of the rent that was due. Uh, those arguments are well-grounded, but ultimately we rejected them because it, to be consistent with what we have already found about the legal status of the parties and also to be consistent with the actual text of the order. The actual text of the order mandates that constables postpone evictions unless enforcement is necessary in the interest of justice or is in, in accordance with the statute, um, 33-1368A, that governs residential evictions based on either a material or irreparable breach or noncompliance with the lease after the tenant was given a notice but failed to cure the breach. The bottom line is that our interpretation is consistent with the actual text of the order and with the stated intent of the order, which is to keep people from becoming homeless during a national medical emergency. If the governor wanted to also exempt evictions that were occurring due to the lease expiring, he presumably would have said that in his order. So based on the plain language of the order, our best practices committee concluded that the governor's executive order extended the landlord-tenant relationship for these types of cases as well. Thank you. And, and we again, we understand that not everyone is going to agree with that interpretation. Nevertheless, that was uh, the consensus of the committee, um, and the best practice did pass unanimously eventually. And Judge Williams did say that the uh, governor extended the executive order essentially until Halloween. Uh, there's actually some major changes that go into effect after August 21, and we'll turn that over to Judge Huberman. All right, thank you. So, um, the, 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 the second executive order extended the delay of evictions through October 31st. Uh, and it does establish, as Charles has said, a new date to consider, which is August 21st. So as of August 21st, the requirement to delay the writ uh, become a little bit more stringent. Um, additionally, it does indicate that the tenant, um, either after August 21st, must notify the landlord of their COVID-related uh, reasons 
uh, for the delay or the, the requesting a delay, but they also have to resubmit it if they've already done so um, or re-notify the landlord. Um, and there are four things that the tenant must notify. One is that there's an ongoing financial hardship as a result of COVID. Uh, they have to request that a payment plan be put in place. They have to show that they have a completed pending application for rental assistance. Um, and as the other order did, they still have to acknowledge that the contractual terms of the lease remain in effect. Um, so um, as with the previous executive order and our previous best practices, um, it is the uh, constables who are directed by the executive order to delay the evictions, and it is through them uh, that the information arrives to the court. The tenants do not uh, give these notices to the court, but to their landlords, and if the constable comes to remove them, then they would show the constable the written notice that they have already given their landlord. Um, and the, the, the best practices uh, does uh, uh, reiterate what we had said before, that the notice can be uh, in writing, whether it be by email or by text messages, that it doesn't have to have uh, the notice um, as the notices in the Landlord-Tenant Act that require a specific form of delivery. All right, so as to the first topic, which was the ongoing financial hardship, um, it, um, they have to, again, uh, notify the landlord in writing, and they need to add supporting documentation. Um, we have created together with the best practice a tenant checklist. The tenant checklist um, has, uh, for the tenant, uh, indicated each one of these four steps that they need to show and give them some guidance as to what documentation they need to attach. Um, I would again hear, you know, I, I, I must have said this before in one of our other podcasts, you know, what is the documentation um, that would be required? Ideally, the tenant would have a letter from their employer saying you're being laid off or we're reducing your hours from 40 hours a week to 15 hours a week. Uh, my experience is that tenants do not have that documentation. It is not readily available for them. So it is very important that at the hearing uh, for the eviction action that the judges explain to the tenants that if they're going to want to stay the writ after the judgment has been signed, uh, that they do need to notify their landlord and need to be able to uh, try to find uh, documentation um, in, in, in as much as that's possible to do. And we as judges, again, deal with that if the motion to compel comes to us as to what documentation would be sufficient and what is it that we are requiring uh, the tenant to provide. Uh, as for the second topic is that they need, uh, the, the executive order says that the tenant needs to request a payment plan to be paid. 
Um, it doesn't specifically say that the payment plan is to be reasonable, and just the fact that they're offering a payment plan uh, would appear to satisfy this prong um, of the tenant's obligation. Uh, the court obviously always has um, the caveat that, that's in the executive orders that in the interest of justice, uh, the court can uh, go ahead and issue a motion, uh, grant a motion to compel. And if, if it's deemed by the judge not to be in the interest of justice, um, I would just suggest that you make a very clear record on that. Uh, but again, the executive order just says that a payment plan must be requested. Uh, we have seen in the practice that the landlords want the payment plan that includes all the past due rent and they'll want them to pay the upcoming rent on time and then additional $500 payments or $1,000 payments to catch up with past due rent. Um, these tenants uh, feel that that's not reasonable and then they don't want to sign those because then they don't want to get a further eviction or not complying with a partial payment agreement. Um, those are all things that the judge will have to consider. Uh, the third um, thing that they need to uh, is that they need to provide to the landlord is proof of submission of a completed pending application for rental assistance. Uh, again, the court will have to examine this evidence um, and determine um, if the application is in fact complete, if it's not complete, um, if it is um, because of the tenant or is it because of some delay uh, that the um, that the provider of the rental assistance um, has not yet uh, been able to um, answer or verify that their submission has been completed. Um, but if the tenant has a document, yeah, usually we would expect it to be an email with some kind of confirmation indicating uh, that they have submitted their application and that it is complete and it's pending approval or pending payment, uh, that that would be sufficient to satisfy this form. Um, if the documentation indicates that they have submitted the application but it is not complete, uh, then again, that's something that the judge will have to determine, uh, again, in the interest of justice, you know, what is the reason that that um, application is not complete uh, again, the executive order does require that it be complete. The idea being that the tenants not just submit a document, uh, a request without anything, and when the agency is asking them for uh, proof of unemployment or proof of income or whatever else that they're asking for, the tenant not comply with that and then just be able to say, well, I submitted an application that's sufficient. The idea is kind of to make sure that the tenants are following through with these applications because we do want that money to come through and the landlords get paid. Um, so those are the, the things that the, um, that the tenant needs to provide the landlord to comply after August 20 with this new 
uh, version of the executive order. Uh, but as in the first executive order, again, they need to have language uh, indicating that they uh, acknowledge that the rent continues to accrue. So that language uh, should also be in whatever letter they send to their landlord. Uh, I would encourage everyone to tell the tenants to use the forms that were created by um, our court uh, that has now been adopted by uh, the Supreme Court also. And if they get that form online, uh, then they will be sure to have the correct language in it. They need to be there. All right, so um, the next topic that I have is uh, to talk about the motions to compel the enforcement of the writ. So the, 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 in a, any case where a uh, constable has not executed the writ, so they have not removed the tenant from the house, or from the, from the rental unit, the landlord can come back to the judge and ask that that writ be enforced. And we, all of those who have heard all our previous podcasts know that we call those uh, motions to compel. And um, they come to us regularly when the landlord feels that the tenant uh, has not provided sufficient documentation or that there's been some change of circumstances or for whatever reason are requesting um, that the judge order that the writ, uh, that the constable has refused to execute, be executed. Um, there was some language in our previous best practice about that if it was clear that the motion to compel should be granted or dismissed, that uh, was not necessary to hold a hearing. Uh, we have since removed that language. Uh, we think that it is in the best interest of all parties, uh, when possible, to hold a hearing on all motions to compel. It is also very important that the parties get notice of the hearing. So we encourage the courts to call the tenants uh, by phone to let them know that the hearing has been set. Uh, the best practice indicates that the landlord should deliver to the party who is in possession of the residence, um, either personally or posting on the door of the residence, a notice of the hearing. Um, uh, would, the, the idea is to make sure that the tenant has notice and is able to participate. Basically because a lot of these motions say that the tenant haven't followed through or have not um, given the landlord sufficient documentation, and if they don't appear, then they don't have that opportunity to be heard, and the motion to compel uh, would end up being granted without the tenant even knowing that it's being held. So this is uh, very important. Um, and then again, like I said, we encourage all the motions to be set for a hearing. Uh, the burden of proof uh, continues to be on the tenant to show that they have a COVID valid reason for the delay. Um, and then, uh, as I explained just now, that after August 21st, uh, they have the other criteria that they need to meet, which is to have uh, basically um, applied for the rental assistance. Uh, 
Uh, it is important to note that the delay cannot be extended beyond the date of the executive order or if there's any future extensions of it. So right now, any delay can only be through August, through October 31st. And then if the defendant has already vacated the premises um, before the motion to compel can be granted, uh, then the plaintiff would have to be uh, request whatever additional rent or amended judgment that they would be requesting at the motion to compel hearing uh, through a separate civil action. Um, the, the judges are not to amend a judgment when the tenant has already uh, vacated the premises. Uh, it, it, there's an additional uh, paragraph in this portion of the best practice uh, that talks about if there is in the future a civil action or small claims action requesting any type of unpaid rent uh, during this period, the same attestation that has been required to be attached to the uh, to the eviction complaint needs to be attached to those uh, civil actions also. Uh, so it is very important that the judges know that if they are claiming past due rent on a case that was covered by CARES Act at the time, um, even though they can, through the civil action, uh, try to obtain unpaid rent, they still are not allowed to request late fees or other types of fees that were not provided for in the CARES Act. So that is something that uh, will not end with the uh, on October 31st, that attestation for civil cases will continue through, um, I will, you know, possibly up to six years statute of limitations um, if they are requesting non-payment of rent on a case that the, the the months of rent that were paid were during the uh, during the CARES Act. And um, when the, the CARES Act, we're talking about the CARES Act, um, that did expire on uh, July 25th. Whatever expectation there was that it would be extended, um, it was not extended, and the CARES Act um, has since been, um, has expired. But... The CARES Act did not allow us, after expiration on the 25th, it required a 30-day notice, uh, that the landlord had to give the tenant a 30-day notice before they were able to file for a non-payment of rent pay. So we, if, if they had sent those notices out the day after the expiration of the CARES Act, uh, we don't expect to get those cases in court until 30 days after that day, which would be um, after July 26th. Um, but I, I expect a lot of those cases will definitely be coming to us um, early September. Uh, I, I, I don't think we actually uh, spelled it out in this best practice, uh, but once those tenants who no longer have the protection of the CARES Act um, would still be tenants in the state of Arizona and would be subject to the protection 
of the executive order, which do not cover them from the late fees being collected, uh, but if they comply with the rest of the requirements uh, imposed on tenants under the executive order, might be able to stay uh, a rid of a restitution that they issued after September once those cases are able to be filed in court. Um, the executive, uh, the administrative order from the Supreme Court uh, says that all matters uh, should be uh, should be resolved timely. Uh, we were originally expecting a large influx of eviction cases when the CARES Act expired, which was around the same date that the governor's executive order was set to expire. But the executive order has now been extended. And we don't know uh, right now when to expect that influx of cases. Um, I think that landlord's patience is wearing down, and it's possible we will be getting some cases. Uh, but I definitely think we'll be getting a lot of the CARES Act cases uh, end of August or maybe early September. Uh, so within the executive order, um, it is important that they should be heard timely, even though the courts, um, the, the timelines within the time frames that cases have to be heard have been suspended. Uh, the idea is not that the courts uh, just uh, extend these cases out uh, for weeks on end. Uh, so to that end, the courts are expected to adjust their calendars uh, to try to be able to hear the cases in, in the timely fashion that they can. Uh, the order also suggests that not more than 25 eviction cases be held per hour uh, to accommodate the fact that the hearings are being held on the phone, that they take longer, um, and that they're a little more cumbersome to hear. Um, the courts limit uh, the eviction calendar to three hours per day. Um, we suggest that the best practice is to separate the cases by law firms. Uh, so the, the big filers uh, who are the ones who file the most amount of cases in our courts, if we separate them by, uh, by law firms, then you'd have one law firm would, would be scheduled, for example, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the following law firm at 10 or 10.30. Uh, it just makes for a cleaner, easier calendar. Um, and then um, I'll turn it over to Charles to talk about the categories of cases to consider. Thank you, Judge. And so we're up to page eight, uh, where we're going to talk about the three different types of cases. And to help guide you through this, concurrent with the third amended best practice, we did a checklist that's um, a page and a half long that's called the pandemic checklist, which is to supplement your other checklists, not to replace them. There's, uh, and in one of the AOC trainings, you did get the whole checklist, and there's a lot that you do need to review with every case. But while we're in this COVID situation, there are additional things that you need to look for. So if you go through that checklist, uh, it will actually work to your advantage. And so we'll start at the top. Does the complaint seek rent 
for any period between March 27 and July 25. If yes, then do this. If no, then look for that. Does a complaint seek more than $10,000 exclusive of interest cost and attorney's fees? If yes, then do this. Uh, and then there's a section called motion to compel before August 22. Uh, the great thing about this is after August 22, we can remove this paragraph and then this checklist will fit on one page. Um, that is until or unless Congress does something. Uh, but if it is a motion to compel and you're hearing it before August 22, uh, you see that those, uh, the quarantine and other health conditions still apply where you don't have to look for a uh, financial hardship. The next uh, section, motion to compel after August 21, you do need to find that financial hardship and you need to look carefully at the documentation that the tenant has provided. Uh, I do suspect we're going to see a lot more motions to compel after August 21. And then if you have a motion to judgment, you do want to look at whether or not the tenant is still uh, in possession. And the last line is just a reminder that there is no automatic change of judge for any matter, including eviction matters, through the end of the year. So back to the best practice, uh, the only thing that we aid, added in uh, paragraph A, delayed by the pandemic only, is a discussion of the balance over 10000 The longer this uh, the delays go into effect, the higher the rent is going to be. So in the first iteration of this best practice way back in March, it's hard, hard to even remember back then, uh, we never even anticipated that rents were going to go over 10000 Well, guess what? Uh, the longer we're into this, it's more likely that rents are going to go over 10000 uh, and it's possible that the landlords do not want to waive that balance over 10000 If they don't want to waive that balance over 10000 uh, they can um, go ahead and file a motion to compel without, uh, without um, requesting an amended judgment and file a separate civil action for that balance. Um, or they can go ahead and agree to have it transferred to superior court. Uh, and the other thing we added is that courts will have to ensure that the CARES Act attestation requirements are complied with. And again, that's why you need to look at the separate checklist that we have provided to you. In paragraph B, we did add quite a bit under uh, the delayed by the CARES Act. And again, we, we do have to ensure that the CARES Act attestation requirements are complied with. And if you look back at the checklist, those attestation requirements changed between July 7 and July 21 because of the different Supreme Court orders. So uh, on, uh, from July 7 to 21, it had to say that the property was not subject to the CARES Act. After July 21, it has to say if it was uh, had, was or ever protected by the CARES Act, if you're asking for rent from March 27 through July 25. Uh, so that is a subtle difference, and the reason that we that distinction is made is because after the expiration of the CARES Act, you can file a, an eviction matter um, after giving a 30-day notice, but the protections of the CARES Act live on 
in that it does require a 30-day notice if you're seeking rent for that period and you are precluded from asking for late fees or other penalties and that's why you need to be looking for that distinction. And we do have a previous best practice that's called eviction complaints that do not substantially comply with eviction rules uh, and we do want to consider dismissing without prejudice complaints that do not comply with the attestation requirement uh, rather than allowing them to amend. If, if you allow them to amend then you're basically saying that you don't need to comply with the rules until the court points out that you, you didn't comply with the rules. If a, a tenant can certainly contest the plaintiff's attestation that the CARES Act did not apply. Uh, and uh, if that is the case, the court should conduct a hearing on that issue, uh, just as you would, con and, and you would resolve th those issues of fact, just like you would any other issue of fact, ensure that due process and substantive due process are complied with. Complaints that are for non-payment of rent for the months only after July 2020 do not require an attestation and may revert to five-day notices and they can request late fees and penalties again only if they're asking for rent after July 2020. As Judge Huberman pointed out, uh, someone who was protected by the CARES Act can still uh, ask for protection under the governor's executive order. That doesn't stop you from issuing the judgment and issuing the writ. What it does is it would um, stop the constable from enforcing the writ. And for uh, paragraph number two, the landlord obtained the judgment but did not request the writ. Uh, the only thing that we added there is uh, the second Supreme Court Administrative Order 2021-19 specifically states that the exclusion of time does not apply to the issuance of writs. Uh, we had some judges get creative with putting out writ dates pretty far out. Uh, that needs to stop because um, the administrative order specifically says that exclusion does not apply to writs. And in, in both instances where it talked about writs being issued, it gave the standard uh, five days as required by law requirement. So uh, let's make sure that we are in, in compliance with that. Uh, the remaining language there did not change, and we'll turn it back to Judge Huberman. All right, thank you. Um, so the next topic is the, when the landlord already has a judgment uh, that they obtained sometime during the life of the executive order, but has not yet requested a writ to the court. Um, so in this case, is that would say uh, that the executive order uh, was really never invoked because there was no delay in the writ. It was just the landlord was not yet requested the writ. Um, I just want to reiterate here there was really not a change in this part of the best practice, uh, but just remember that the writ can still be requested even though more than 45 days have passed since the date that the judgment was entered. Um, the, 
the the judgment doesn't expire or the writ doesn't expire because of the time that went by. But um, after 45 days has gone by, uh, then the judge in that case has to certify that the tenancy has not been reinstated. Um, so I, as more time goes by, that might be more complicated because in the meantime, um, I would expect that a lot of the tenants have paid at least partial payments of rent, um, and it might make things a little bit more complicated. So it's definitely necessary for the judge to hold a hearing in order to determine that the, the tenancy has not been reinstated if they are now asking for the risk uh, to be issued. Um, so, uh, and, and this will also be in the interest of the tenant uh, who wouldn't be suddenly surprised that the constable shows up at their home after three months, not knowing that that was coming, and they would be put on notice. Um, so it's it, it, it suggested that the judges hold a hearing in this case. Uh, the same criteria that I explained before should make sure that the tenant has notice of the hearing, uh, that the court should call them or have the landlord make sure that they let them know or at least post it on the door. Um, these hearings uh, additionally uh, would help the landlord in as much as they would be able to amend the judgment at that time at the additional rent that has gone by. Um, at our previous best practice, or in the previous best practice, uh, it was suggested that we could amend the judgment. Uh, this has now been incorporated into the Supreme Court Administrative Order that judges can, that judgment, I'm sorry, can be amended. Uh, so if you get a request for amending the judgment, which would be to add more months of rent, uh, that is something that you could do uh, before you issue the new writ. Um, the other case would be the cases where there was a judgment, there was a writ, and that writ was delayed uh, in its enforcement by the constable. Um, so what the administrative order of the Supreme Court has done is indicate that those writs are no longer valid. So at some point we had considered that uh, the constables were holding on to those writs, and if a motion to compel was eventually granted, they were informed or given a copy of the ruling, and then they were able to execute the same writ they had. But the administrative order now makes it clear that that writ is no longer valid. So writs that were not executed should be returned to the court. Um, and if a motion to compel is eventually granted, a new writ must be issued, and that new writ date should be five days after the date that the judge determines the writ is to be issued. Uh, so the fact that there was a writ prior doesn't mean that the writ can be issued for the following day. They still have to have the five days. Um, and um, well, and I already talked about the amended judgment. That's that's already in, in that, that the paragraph continues with that. I do want to mention just one thing really quickly. Uh, for the judges that are listening, we had an issue in my court with 
indexing the return risk in the uh, in EDMS uh, because when you pull up the file and you see that the RID was been returned, uh, there's no indication that it's a RID that has not been executed. Um, so it there was some, I mean, mostly I let the staff deal with it, uh, but they did come up with a solution. Uh, so that's something that everyone might want to consider if you want to make sure that the RID has been stayed is indicated as not served or not executed in EDMS, so when you get a new RID, um, it's clearer in the record. And that's, um, that's all for my part. Okay, Judge Williams. In terms of the, what happens if some in violation of the CARES Act, uh, we've taken the position that, that that's an unlawful ouster under existing Arizona law. Judicial ethics requirements generally prohibit judges from doing independent investigations into the facts of a case. So we don't actually know whether a property is protected by the CARES Act or not. We rely on the landlord's attestation that it's, it's either not a, it's a well, it's, it's not a CARES Act property. If a tenant subsequently just discovers that they were wrongfully evicted, and if they want to move back into that former residence, then they have two options. They can file either some type of motion to reconsider or a motion to set aside the judgment or something like that. That would be maybe easier and faster. Or they can actually sue the landlord for an unlawful outer action under Arizona law. The applicable statute is... Uh, 33-1367. If they want only money damages, then it would be a regular civil lawsuit. They don't need to file for unlawful ouster. They would just file a, a regular civil lawsuit. When former tenants use our court unlawful ouster form, the case is going to be treated and scheduled as if it's an eviction action. So it won't be something to where, you know, hey, I'd like to move back into my residence. I don't have any place to live right now. Oh, okay, well, we'll set that for pre-trial conference in four months. Oh, that, that, that should not happen. These should be scheduled expeditiously, just as if they were an eviction action. Um, just for maybe for clerks and, and, and judges, we actually have two forms that have the phrase complaint by tenant in the heading. Um, so it's important for tenants who want to move back into their former residence to use the one that also says unlawful ouster on it. The other form is for failure to uh, supply essential services. So if, if, it, if they feel that they've been wrongfully evicted, then they need to use the unlawful unlawful ouster form. If they do, then they're they're going to have a, a well-fled complaint that, that puts the landlord on notice what, the, what they're asking for. Um, they can request to move back in and damages uh, by statute are an amount at least equal to a two months rent or whatever the actual damages are. Um, about six minutes before we started recording this podcast, um, the state of Arizona, uh, or the administrative office of the court through the, the Supreme Court, uh, adopted uh, in large part our unlawful ouster form and distributed it 
uh, statewide support. So whether you use the form off the Maricopa County uh, uh, forms library or you use the one that was just distributed to the court statewide, that's, that's the way to go. Hopefully we won't have very many of these. Hopefully if we get one, the landlord will say, oh, you're, you're right, I, I missed this property, I'm sorry, um, and be willing to set aside the judgment. If the landlords aren't willing to do that, then they potentially can be in a world of hurt because the, the, there, there are pretty strong uh, penalties for, for violating someone's rights by evicting them when there was no legal basis to do so. I guess I do have some sort of final thoughts as we wrap up the, the podcast. Um, we get that everything is difficult right now, um, uh, maybe especially for uh, Pac-12 and Big Ten football fans that are in warning uh, today after the season's being canceled. But um, if, if all this stuff is hard for us, if all this stuff is hard for us to keep track of, and it is for me, I, I know it is for other judges, just try to think how hard it is for tenants, you know, to figure out what's going on or for self-represented landlords to figure out what's going on. Um, so, yeah, sometimes we need to bend over backwards to, to help explain this stuff to people because there's everything we're doing is has not been done before uh, for the most part on these, these best practices stuff. Um, we also completely understand that the governor's executive orders are controversial. Some people don't like them. Um, our best practice attempts to fill in gaps on how to enforce the orders. Um, we encourage everyone to follow our best practice, even if you don't like the underlying policy behind the governor's order. Um, the whole reason for this kind of stuff, the, the legal and case management theories, behind our best practice, behind the uh, Chief Justice's administrative orders, also that were so the justice courts could have a single hearing that could resolve issues concerning any unpaid accrued rent and when necessary provide the tenant with the standard five days of additional time to move before any rent is issued. Judge Hoover talked about how being evicted should not be a surprise. The, the constable didn't just say knock on, knock on your door and uh, you know grab your stuff and leave. Um, judges certainly are not robots. Uh, judges being able to maintain their individual judicial discretion is critical. But at the same time, we owe it to everyone to try to standardize procedures to the extent possible. Um, and that's the whole point of best practices. That's the whole point of doing all this training, all these podcasts, all these uh, statewide Zoom things that, that Charles does. Um, we, we, to the extent possible, we, can all, we should all be on the same page. We may not all decide the cases the same way because we're human, but we should at least be able to agree on the process on how those cases are decided. And that's, that's why I think uh, best practices are important. I may not be neutral because I'm chairman of the best practices committee, but I, I, I think that's why we need best practices. And Judge Williams, I'm not going to let you sign off quite yet. I'd like you to briefly discuss the president's executive order. Okay. The, on August 8th, uh, President Trump signed an executive order um, that is not qualified.
what pretty much every newspaper said that it said. Um, the, most of the media reports um, said, you know, President Trump signs new order extending protections for evictions, um, regardless of whether it was conservative or liberal or middle-of-the-road media. Pretty much all the stories said that, all the headlines said that. And then when you actually read the order, it basically directs um, three, maybe four federal agencies to look at things that could be done to help tenants. And that's, that's fine, but that's not an executive order that uh, gives tenants any additional rights at this time. So while some of the initial statements back in March were confusing on Governor Ducey's order, and we had tenants coming into court saying, but the governor, I saw in the news, the governor said you can't evict me. I fully anticipate that we'll have some people coming in to our course now saying, but I saw in the news that the president signed something that said you can't evict me. That's not what the president signed at all. And uh, you can debate policy and certainly debate him. Uh, but the bottom line is the August 8th executive order didn't extend the CARES Act protection. Um, in my opinion, only Congress can do that. And it didn't create any new substantive rights for, for anybody. So if someone comes in and says, but I, I heard on the news that, that I can't be evicted, you're just going to say, I'm sorry, you heard wrong. And I guess worst case scenario, you could print the executive order out and hand it to the person. Or since no one's in our courtroom right now, we're doing everything by phone. You could offer to email a link to them or something like that. But the executive order was more like the type of thing that was said at a staff meeting. Hey, you know, Treasury, you look into this. Hey, Health and Human Services, you look into this. Hey, uh, you look into this. You know, report back to me what we can do. But that's not how it was reported to the media. Thank you. Uh, we jokingly get questions asked about when is the fourth amended best practice coming out? And, and actually, that's not that much of a joke. <laughs> the way things are changing this frequently, uh, I mean, all of, all of the things that happened after our second amended best practice just boggles the mind. Uh, keep in mind that with a 30-day notice for a CARES Act property, uh, the CARES Act matters can't be filed until August 20, after August 25th. It's possible that Congress might still do something before then. Uh, if and when Congress actually passes anything, uh, we will reconvene the Best Practices Committee and try to figure out what they did and how we're going to apply it. Uh, so just uh, keep watch your email feed and watch the podcast feed. Judge Huberman, do you have any further? Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, I did mention before uh, that the executive order uh, does say that the judge can make decisions based on the interest of justice. Uh, you know, as Judge Williams said, this has been a frustrating time for everyone, and many of the landlords are uh, frustrated. Hopefully things will get better after August 21st, because now uh, there's a little bit more onus being put on the tenants uh, to show that they're being a little bit more proactive uh, to be able to get some rental assistance. 
but one of the arguments that I've been seeing lately come across all motions to compel is that it's in the interest of justice to help the landlord. That the landlord hasn't collected rent in four or five months, uh, that the situation is very dire for the landlord, and that that would be in the interest of justice. Um, again, as Judge Williams said, you know, while judges have judicial discretion, and it's your determination as to how to uh, how to interpret the interest of justice, uh, but just make sure that you are not adding language that is not in the executive order as a requirement for tenants uh, to be complying with. That's all I wanted to add. And with that, uh, I should have said at the beginning of the podcast, you, as always, you can find the written materials in Hightail. The last page of the written materials will be the COJET certificate. Today does qualify for an hour of COJET. If you go through the materials and actually read through the materials, go ahead and submit that for an hour of credit. And be safe and, be, and stay healthy. Good luck. No, thank you. No, I thank you. And again, I thank you. <laughs>